Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. Wow. It's been a weird and busy couple of weeks since we last chatted. Where do I begin? Let's start with an introduction. For those of you who didn't get the memo, I slipped under your door while you were sleeping. This is the Run Run Live podcast, and this is Chris, your esteemed host. I'll pause for a second while you introduce yourself. Go ahead. Uh Uh-huh. Really? Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's fascinating. Today, we have Dr. Philip Maffetone on for a long chat. We were having such a warm and interesting conversation that I let it run well into the mid-20-minute range. As much as the inconsistency pains me, we may run a wee bit late or long today. So take a deep breath and relax. When I reached out to Dr. Maffetone, It was because I remember him from the old days when he was one of the first to recommend training at a lower aerobic level to increase your speed and endurance. His experiments with athletes ended up as some of the foundation for the heart rate training we all take for granted today. Then I discovered this wonderful man who has gone back to the earth and writes ballads for a living. Fascinating dude. I'm going to hitch one of his songs with his permission, to the back end of the show, so don't leave early. In section one, we're going to talk about habits. In section two, we're going to talk about marathon strategies. Like I said, a long show today. Two weeks ago, after we last talked, I met my buddy Ryan down in Waco, Texas, for the Miracle Match Marathon. It was a really well-put-on race. At some point over the next couple of weeks, I'll have to write up a race report But when we hear Waco, we don't picture it as being a particularly inviting place. But I really liked it. The course was super hilly, but went through some really nice landscape. Uh, The support was awesome. The swag was good, too. And this is a race I would recommend. And I'm not sure why more people don't show up for it. My bib bib number was 50. (laughs) And I'm guessing there were no more than 200 people in the full marathon. My ankle is still screwed up, so I couldn't race. At this point, I'm just trying not to do any lasting damage. That was my 10th race in 10 months since Boston last year. Then on a short week, which included the snowpocalypse in Atlanta, I turned around and flew down to New Orleans to run the Rock and Roll Marathon with Eric and Dan. Again, my ankle prevented any ambitiousness. I'm so glad I was able to run this race and spend the weekend with these two loons from St. Louis. I had a blast. This rock and roll event was much bigger than the Denver one that I ran in October. It was just a big party. And that was my 11th marathon in 11 months since Boston. Then I had to get up early Monday morning and fly to Europe for a business engagement in Germany. I guess in summary, I managed to run those marathons successive weekends. I had some fun, but I'm pretty beat up, and I haven't really slept in a couple of weeks. Because of the ankle, I haven't, re- I haven't run, except for marathons, 
in about a month, and I've been staying in the pool to try and let it heal, and that's not a good way to stay fit. When Ryan and I were doing our obligatory Sunday night beer celebration in Waco, he was trying to convince me to write a book about my efforts this year, and I told him it wasn't a good story because my goal was to run a marathon a month and requalify for Boston, and you can't have a story where the hero fails all the time. That's not how it's supposed to work. In my mind's eye, when I started rolling this back in the spring, I saw myself getting stronger and faster with each race and training back into the fitness I lost to the platar fasciitis. Well, that's not really how it's worked out. I'm running some of my slowest races, and I'm limping around like a car crash victim. The worst part of it for me is that instead of a celebration of running, it's starting to feel like an obligation, like work, and that's never good. I heard talk about being uh, an inspiration, and that was never my intent. After all the lunatics running across various countries and running multiple marathons every day that we've talked to here, I didn't think this thing I was doing was all that inspirational or challenging or noteworthy. I'd appreciate your feedback, my friends. I don't feel like any kind of inspiration. Mostly I feel old, tired, (laughs) and broken. So, Phil... Dr. Phil, if you're listening, here are some new lyrics for you I I wrote on one of my trips over the last months. We can write a song together called The Ballad of the Idiot Runner. Fight or flight, bane or blight, stand your ground, play your sound, bon homme, false pretense, drive the world, churn the seas, small men with wool vests and cotton mines. On with the show! Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. The Power of Habit and How to Make It Work for You, Connecting the Dots. Since the end of December, I have had to drive to the airport a different way. I've been driving to Logan Airport for 30 years, sometimes three times a week. When I have to get up and go to the airport at 4 a.m., I can get there literally with my eyes closed. And I spoke to you last week about how I organize my travel and packing routines so that they are rote and habitual. They just happen. I don't have to think about it. So in December, they closed the Callahan Tunnel from Boston to Logan Airport. This means I have to take a different route to the airport. This route isn't much longer or worse than my habitual route, but I hate it. It stresses me out. Why? If you were to hook me up to a brainwave machine, you would see that when I drove my old route, my neurons were barely firing. My brain was dead. I could travel that route without turning my brain on. If you watch my brain on the new route, you'd see my brain working hard the whole way. That's the difference habit makes. I read a book over the last couple of weeks that seemed to arrive at the right time. It was The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. It wasn't a great book. It wasn't all that well written, but it showed up at the right time in my life to connect the dots of many of the things I think and teach and write about. In fact, the prediction software at Amazon probably knew it was the right book at the right time and put it in front of me at the right price so I would buy it because Amazon studies my habits. This is a good time of year to think about habits. People are trying to lose weight or get consistent in their exercise routines or do something positive with their careers. Why do you care about habits? Well, first, habits allow you to automate the more mundane aspects of your life, like driving to the airport or packing for a trip. 
it will make you mindful that you are doing some things on automatic pilot, whether for good or for bad. If it wasn't for our habits, we'd have to think about every mundane task we do and our brains couldn't cope. Habits allow us to focus our big brains on more important things. When you understand what habits are and how they are formed, it gives you the power to reprogram yourself. It will allow you to untangle your sticky bad habits and potentially replace them with good habits. What's the science? What's the basic science of a habit? Habits are automatic routines that we do subconsciously, and they consist of three parts. A cue or a trigger, the routine itself, and then a reward. For example, when you get up in the morning, you probably brush your teeth. I hope you brush your teeth. The cue is the time of day and getting out of bed. The routine is getting your toothbrush, toothpaste, and brushing your teeth. The reward is that minty freshness. If you couldn't brush your teeth, when you get out of bed, it would really bother you because it's an ingrained habit. This is what makes bad habits so hard to break. You'll notice that ex-smokers, even ex-smokers, when they see someone on TV light up a cigarette, the ex-smoker will unconsciously crave a cigarette and look around for their pack, even if they haven't smoked in years. Seeing that person light up on TV was the cue to kick off the old routine. If you examine the habits you'd like to modify, you can figure out what the cue is. Maybe it's the time of day or the person you're with or the commercial or some combination of that that causes you to get up every night and wander to the refrigerator to grab a cookie. It's very hard to stop an existing habit. It takes willpower. And studies have shown that willpower is finite. Willpower is just like a muscle. It gets tired the more you use it. That's why you're more likely to have a cue that reverts you to a bad habit when you're tired or worn down, like late at night, or when you've had a couple of drinks. Like that cookie in the fridge at night, you're tired, it's there, you revert. You can work on building your willpower muscle by making consistent small good habit decisions, but it's difficult to make your brain run counter to an old habit. It's much easier to co-opt the existing habit. For example, if I just replace the cookie with, let's say, a glass of water or a carrot when I get up off the couch to wander over to the fridge, maybe I could leave the rest of the habit alone. You know, it probably wouldn't work because a carrot may not produce the same reward as a cookie. The final piece of the puzzle that you need to change a habit is simply the belief that you can change that habit. If you think you can, you can. If you don't think you can, then you probably won't change. So don't overlook the belief step, because that's the first step. So how do we re-engineer a habit? First, you have to believe in the change. So do whatever it takes to believe in that future state. And this often takes the form of goals or even repeating some affirmations of the belief every day. You, know, you want to internalize that belief that you can actually make that change. The second step is to identify the components of the habit you want to change. What is the cue? What is the routine that is kicked off by that cue? What is the reward? And the cue can be, like I said, a location, a time, your emotional state, other people, a preceding action or event. You always eat buttered popcorn at the movies. You always eat more when you're depressed. Once you identify the cue, you can look at eliminating it. Or isolate yourself from it. Don't put yourself in that position. At the very least, come up with a strategy. And your strategy will be to recognize the cue and then change your routine. 
For instance, if I know I'm watching TV, I'm going to get up during the commercial break and wander into the kitchen to look for something to eat. What if I recognize the cue and instead I do 10 to 20 push-ups during the commercial break and then get a glass of water? Huh? See how it works? You can have fun with it. Keep a log. See if you can find different ways to re-engineer your habits in your favor. Keystone habits. You and I are lucky. We are endurance athletes. We already understand the importance of keystone habits. These are habits that you can create or change that will have a cascading effect on your life. Creating the habit of running every day will also change your eating habits and have a positive influence in your personal and professional life. That means you don't have to re-engineer all your habits. Look at all the habits you'd like to change and identify the keystone habits. Where can you do your engineering where it will have the greatest leverage? And life events are habit moments of truth. Have you ever noticed how people will be able to make radical changes in their lives as a result of a life event? We all know the story of a divorced individual who gets in fantastic shape. We all know those people who get bad news from the doctor and are scared into a healthy lifestyle. These life events are powerful because they break the familiar patterns in our lives, and in doing so, they disrupt our habits. When our habits are in disarray, we can introduce new ones. You don't have to wait for a near-death experience or a divorce to change your habits. You can use this knowledge to your advantage. If you have a particularly sticky bad habit pattern, don't worry about re-engineering it. Just break the pattern. Go to a different place. Do something radically different, like going outside to run barefoot in the snowdrift during the commercial break instead of eating the cookie. Running a marathon, like we always talk about, can be a life event that puts people into a new pattern. Getting your ass kicked by a marathon can break your patterns, too. In summary, once you understand the habit loop of cue, routine, reward, you can recognize them in your life. And once you recognize them, you can start to re-engineer them. Look for keystone habits to concentrate on first. For particularly deep habits, you may have to do something radical to blow up the pattern. By the way, all this works uh, when you're trying to change the culture of an organization, too. Before any of this will work, you need to believe in the change. The simplest thing is often the hardest. So repeat after me. You might, you might want to write this down. I believe I have control over myself, my life, and my destiny. I believe I can become better if I choose to. I believe I have the free will to change. I can do anything. I can be anything. And I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. So what, what should I call you? Should I call you Dr. or Phil? Or I shouldn't call you Dr. Phil because that's somebody else. Well, I'm the original Dr. Phil, but I don't get as much press as the other Dr. Phil. I don't know if he's still out there getting press, but, you know, when you're living off the grid, you don't you don't hear about what's going on in the world, which is really a quite a bonus. But um, you can call me Phil or Dr. Phil or wh whatever you'd like. Well, that's great. So I was, uh, we were talking a little bit before, and I remember, gosh, back in the 70s and 80s, um, you writing books, I guess, about uh, heart rate training. And so you were like the original guy with the heart rate training. And, and you remember that big, whole big thing on aerobic training and all that stuff we went through back in the 80s? Well, I'm still going through it with people that I consult with, and I still write quite a bit about it. But yeah, the aerobic trend kind of comes and goes and then it you know it often gets pushed aside by the latest 
latest and greatest, which is often the latest unhealthy thing. But that aerobic trend comes and goes and has been for quite a while now. Right. So you set up the original heart rate training tables and worked with some of the famous or important athletes of long distance running and and endurance sports back 30, 40 years ago. How did that all come about? I had studied biofeedback when I was a student, and I saw how significant the body responded to stimulus. And one of the things that we used to measure the body and and the changes it would go through to visual stimulus, auditory stimulus, uh, tactile effects, and so forth, was heart rate, because the heart rate reflects the nervous system And when you excite the nervous system, you see the heart rate go up. And when you relax it, the heart rate goes down. So when I first got into practice and started seeing people who exercised, and I always knew that exercise physiology was what I wanted to spend my time doing in practice. And so it was a tool. And back in the 70s, we didn't have a whole lot to go by. The the heart monitors that we know today did not exist. And I was able to find a heart monitor that was used in hospitals for cardiac rehab. And it was like a crossing guard outfit. It was this big strap that went around the chest and another strap went over the shoulder and it had a big box on it that sat on top of your chest. And it gave me a way to measure the heart directly. I knew that I didn't want to measure pulse rates because they they had a certain degree of inaccuracy. And that's what I used. And I had one in my office and I used it with runners and cyclists on the treadmill. I would often go to the track and uh, and use it. And then I started getting busy and I actually bought a second one and that was kind of unheard of. And then I started lending them out to runners. I'd said, go, you know, your next two days, wear this heart monitor and then bring it back because I need it for other other runners. And um, it wasn't until the early early 80s that the wireless heart monitors came out and slowly it got to be um, something that people r- relied on more and more. Yeah. So when did you start to draw the parallels between the heart rate biofeedback and sort of effort level and how to train in the right zones for peak performance? Uh, you know, how did that that must have been sort of, there must have been an aha moment there someplace. Yeah, there were, there were a number of aha moments, uh, those, those wonderful alpha wave effects in the brain. I think the earliest one was more of a hypothetical situation where I realized that stress was a, um, stress is, and as I, uh, understood stress back in the seventies, realized that it was an impairment for someone who wanted to be healthy. And then someone who wanted to be a better athlete, the same thing happened. Stress was was a, a, a real negative, and that I could use heart rate as a as a biofeedback method to help the athlete understand when stress was having an adverse effect on them. So it was in the 70s. But what was even more important was that I was kind of an obsessed person, and I I gathered a lot of data on everything I did with athletes I wrote down and I would measure mile times and I would measure measure five mile uh, runs on the track with each one mile split or each quarter back then quarter mile split and then as time went on I would measure 
5K times on those athletes, 10K times, half marathon times, marathon times. And then at some point in the early 80s, I came up with the 180 formula because I had a lot of data. I had a lot of great information that I could crunch and see very important relationships between um, these numbers and those numbers. And that's when the the aha moment really came and everything sort of just just came together. Right. So anybody who's been in a gym in the last 30 years, you see those charts on the wall with age and heart rate. That's a lot of that's coming from your from your research, right? Some of it is. Some of those charts are still the old 220 formula charts, which was a theoretical thing that was developed before I developed my 180 formula and and, and uh, other things. And it was really there was no research that showed that it had any value, but it it caught on and it um, you you still see it out there. The important component of that old inaccurate 220 formula is that if you subtract your age from 220, you come up with your maximum heart rate. And as almost every runner knows or every athlete knows, it usually doesn't apply. Sometimes it does coincidentally, but it often does not. So it, it's you know those those traditions die hard and they they still uh, they still hang around. So explain to us how the 180 formula is different. Well, what I was doing with in, and in the early years, the the running boom attracted a lot of runners to my clinic. I was in uh, Westchester County, just north of New York City. So there was sure. a large population of of runners that I started seeing, and it was a great thing to collect data with and what I was doing was coming up with a a heart rate for runners to train in a more healthy way and in, in a way that they can increase fat burning and therefore increase endurance and stamina and what I would soon be calling aerobic speed in other words they would be able to run faster at a submax heart rate right and so I was doing this in my clinic. I was going out on the track with larger and larger numbers of athletes every week and evaluating them there. I was evaluating on the treadmill and so on and so forth. And I was coming up with um, a number for a given athlete. And I would say, you know, here, I want you to train at 142 because that appears to be um, based on all of these evaluations, the most effective uh, level the this maximum aerobic heart rate for you to train at and as time went on I fine-tuned that evaluation but it was still a tedious process it would take sometimes hours of of assessment and I was lecturing one time uh, about the process and someone raised their hand and said how could we come up with this this number by ourselves and right and I didn't have an answer and I was I was embarrassed that I didn't have an answer, and that got me thinking. Well, simple math should be able to bring me a number that is the same or almost the same as what I'm coming up with in my evaluations. And to make a very long story short, that became the 180 formula. I knew that if we just play around with numbers, and I I came up with the the 180 formula, despite all the the misinformation out there in blogs doesn't mean anything it has it's not a max number it's not a it's not like 220 it doesn't mean anything it's a means to an end i actually came up with 180 one morning in the shower after a workout 
And I just said, well, that, that's a good starting point. Let's, let's take that number and then plug in other individualized variables. And because they, it was a formula that I wanted to make as individual as one could make a formula. And, um, so plugging in fitness levels and health factors, uh, eventually would get an individual capable of coming up with a, a number very, very similar or identical that I can come up with in my clinic. To basically get them to what their their specific individual training zone should be. Correct. The heart rate that training at or below that level will build the aerobic system, which means you'll train your body to burn more fat as an energy source, rely less on sugar, develop more stamina, and perhaps more important than anything else is that runner will be able to go faster at the same heart rate over time. Right. A very important thing, and I should mention it now because it, it comes up later, and if we don't get to it, you're, you'll get a lot of emails asking. But it's, <laughs> the question is, well, what happens if I don't get faster at the same heart rate? Well, a lot of people don't. And the reason that someone would not get faster at the same heart rate is because there's some impairment, there's some roadblock in the body, something in the metabolism, something in the physical body, some health problem that is interfering with the process. The best example, which isn't real common, but it does it does occur, is uh, the, the runner who is iron deficient anemic. If the red muscle fibers, those slow twitch muscle fibers, they're red because of iron. And if you're deficient in iron, you're just not going to get those muscles to work right no matter how well you train, and you'll just not get any faster. But there's a hundred factors that could impair progress, and all you have to do as an athlete is remove these roadblocks, get healthier, and as you get healthier, you'll make natural progress. The human body will naturally progress, and you remove the roadblocks, and you'll make those natural progressions. Right. And there's two things you said that are so important, and I keep trying to tell people this, is one is it's very individual, right? Yes. It Every person is different. Um, if you look at me, my resting heart rate is 36. So, you know, I blow up most of the tables, but that doesn't mean I don't have a, I don't know what my aerobic target heart rate is, right? Right. I just, just had to get there a different way. And the second thing, before you continue, is, you know, we used to call this holistic back in the 60s and 70s, right? That you can't take one little bit and say that determines your health. It's the whole, like you said, infinite number of, of things that pile into that. Correct, correct. And boy, it's a, it's an abused and uh, misused word, holistic, but that's what it's all about. We can't look at the one issue. And, you know, when I was seeing a lot of athletes, uh, I'm no longer in practice. I'm I'm off doing uh, other things, still writing and lecturing, but I'm doing uh, doing uh, many different things. But when I was in practice and I had a large volume of athletes that I would see, I noticed that some of them would be in one category where they were into running. Running was their religion, and other other runners, sure they were running, but they were they were diet fanatics. They were mm. they were running and diet was at the forefront of their religion. And then there were still others who were into shoes uh, and, and on and on. And that's the other end of being holistic. And you need to look at all the factors because they all play a very significant role in human physiology. 
Yeah, so people are always looking for silver bullets, and there really isn't, you know? There is not. Yeah. So I, I've heard also that by training at the uh, at the aerobic level, you're also changing the physiology of the cells themselves? You're, yes, you're changing the whole body. You're You're improving health on many, many levels. One of the I think what you're alluding to, but this is an interesting thing, and if it's not what you're talking about, we can shift gears, but one of the things that training that aerobic system, training at that 180 formula level will do, is it'll improve your a body's ability to control free radicals, oxidative stress, which mm. is a, a very, very significant part of being healthy. If your body is not controlling oxidative stress, then free radical population will increase. This is why we consume a healthy diet that contains antioxidants, not taking antioxidant supplements because they don't work very well, but consuming fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and other um, healthy foods that contain thousands of antioxidants that we use all the time and, and control free radicals. And, and if we can uh, train properly, then that is... A, just plays a significant role in doing the same thing. Right, because the, the free radicals, uh, two things. One is that's how, how you get cancer, right? Yep. One of these things breaks up your cells and turns it into a, a cancer. The other is uh, inflammation, right? And one of the things we talk about a lot these days, especially when we talk about nutrition, is inflammation. Correct. So if you re- eat the if you have the right foods, they'll take your inflammation down versus pumping it up, right? Exactly. But if you eat the right foods six and a half days a week, it still could be a problem because diet is such a powerful thing that we can turn genes on and off with diet. We can we can turn genes for heart disease, for example, on. We can turn those genes on if we eat the wrong diet and we can turn them off if we eat the right diet. So eating, eating a healthy, you know, the whole idea of, of eating pasta and a lot of refined carbohydrates because we're runners or cyclists or whatever kind of athlete um, is, is still prevalent because the companies that make these products are banging it into our heads. If you're reading the, the sports magazines and listening to advertisements, which many people are going to a, to a marathon expo or any race expo, you're banged in the head with all this stuff as well. And <coughs> Or even even at the finish line, Phil. I mean, yes, uh, day before yesterday, I ran a, a marathon, and it's all the milks and the sports drinks and the even that that uh, monster stuff. You know, the really bad stuff. You know, that they're saying put this in your body after your marathon. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing that the process has gone on so long without. You know, look what look how long it took them to create the changes in cigarette smoking and tobacco use. And yeah. am I equating tobacco use with refined carbohydrates? I sure am because the damage is very similar. And, you know, they took so long to deal with tobacco because there were lobbyists that were making millions of dollars that were combating the the research, combating common sense. And the same thing is happening with, with the carbohydrate world in terms of foods. The big companies that are making it are creating an image that it's somehow healthy and uh, the sports drink world, the sports so-called energy bar world, you know, they 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 t- they often will take the leap of, you know, here's something you can consume 
uh, during a marathon, for example, this sugary drink during a marathon. Well, okay, there's a there's a place for that potentially, but that doesn't mean you should guzzle the stuff all day long because you're a runner and expect to be healthy by doing so because it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, I read an interesting article this week in one of the science websites about how they isolated some genes from some guy who was wandering around uh, Spain 7,000 years ago and he uh, they they had just turned there's actually a genetic mutation to allow us to eat pasta <laughs> and that sort of stuff right yeah <laughs> and and he had this mutation right so or he he had some of them and so they can actually see where our diet changed and then it changed us mm-hmm. yeah I mean the the gene you know there are genes for everything but the fact that we have them doesn't mean that they have to be turned on and and active. We, in fact, control our genes. Our genes don't control us. We control our genes by having a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So uh, we've talked about this stuff for a while. You're into a lot of stuff these days, Phil. You're, you're, uh, you've got a number of books out, and you're basically a musician at this point, right? Living off the grid on a farm, uh, Be, being a healthy guy? That's correct. The, the goal, um, the, key, the key phrase there, being a healthy guy, I got into uh, practice in 1977 and with the intention of, you know, continuing a healthy life, I had beat myself up as a student and became very unhealthy. So I got back into health, actually ran the New York City Marathon thinking that, well, this is what I'm going to do to prove my health. And of course, when I crossed the finish line, I realized that, hey, I wasn't proving my health. All I did was get fit enough to run 26 miles. Just about anybody can do that. And I need to figure out how to also be healthy. And so this is really an extension of, of that being in practice and, and doing a lot of the things I was doing was not, I was helping a lot of people obtain health and obtain fitness, but I wasn't getting enough of it. So here I am kind of off the grid living, uh, in a passive solar house with a lot of off the grid energy and, Ten years ago, uh, in the midst of a very wonderful, successful career working with athletes and writing and traveling and lecturing, I woke up one morning and realized that I wanted to be a songwriter. I had music in my head from my earliest memories in life, and I think probably in high school I realized that this was original music. I had never heard this before. I was a music fanatic. You know, growing up in the 60s, how could you not be a music fanatic? And I I realized that, hey, I've got music in my head that's original. And I tried playing. They they told me, no, I couldn't study music because I was a bad student. How could I possibly take on another, you know, another learning thing? And on and on and on. Finally, I woke up April 15th, 10 years ago, and bang, I had to be a a songwriter. I, I this was this was an incredible passion that was so powerful, I literally dropped everything to learn how to be a songwriter, how to take the the music that was in my head. And we really don't have music in our heads um, unless we're, we're pathological there. We have a feeling in our head. And as a songwriter, my, my job is to take that feeling and turn it into a song. And I've been doing that for 10 years and I've written and recorded hundreds of songs and it's the most incredible thing I've ever done in my life. So that's good because we we talk a lot about 
you know, stress being bad for you. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of cor- there's a lot of correlation between mental stress and health as well. Sure. So if you can move yourself into a people talk a lot more about meditation these days and that sort of thing. Making yourself mentally healthy is just as important as the uh, the physical. And you found your you found your muse. Exactly. And, I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I'm still spending most of my time doing it. I still find that it, it's, you know, it's still one of the most wonderful things that I've ever experienced, being able to take that feeling and convert it into a, the sounds that we get in the studio. It's, uh, it's amazing. So you're still, uh, you're still working out? You're still a runner? I'm still running. Uh, you know, I do different things depending on where I am, the weather. So I, I will hike, bike, run, swim. I'm physically active uh, on the farm and sometimes I do strength training if I'm not doing enough work on the farm. So I do combinations of things depending on what I feel like doing and what, you know, the the weather and the whatever. But I'm yeah. you know, I have not competed in a long time. I once in a while I get the inkling of going back to the track. That's where my athletic world started as a sprinter. And my theory is that you're always as good as your peers. So if I was at a national class level when I was 17 and 18 and 19 years of age, then hypothetically I should still be there today uh, among my peers, among those in my age group. So I, every once in a while I think, you know, maybe, maybe I can do that. But I'm so far from a track. Yeah. The, the idea of traveling to a track to do workouts is, is just so foreign. But, uh, you know, I, I, I have not competed in quite a while. I don't miss it because I, I, uh, uh, there's too many other things I'm doing. Well, you need to put an oval in out in the, uh, out in the field. Out in the know, desert. Just like, yeah, just like, uh, that, that movie with Kevin Costner where he builds the, uh, the ballpark in his backyard in the cornfield. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, that it's funny you say that though because you remember back before we we knew about heart rate training and and aerobic training the way everybody trained was basically track work and it didn't matter what you were training for they just ran hard all the time yeah yeah well and we yeah and you know before the running boom we had this track world there were distance runners, but, you know, you would never hear about distance runners and you never would see people outside running. If you did, you might pull up and ask them if they needed any help uh, getting to where they were going. But what happened with the running boom was the coaches from track and field ended up coaching distance runners. And they came over from track and field and brought their work ethic with them, which was intervals and and you know, run fast or train fast to, to race fast ethic. And, and it's still there today quite often in, in many, in many cases. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. All right. Give us your, uh, your website and, uh, and any, any, uh, books or anything that you got on offer. The website is philmaffetone.com. And I, I've, you know, I've, done so much writing through the years for many many magazines and realized a few years ago that hey half the stress three quarters of the stress of writing is dealing with magazines dealing with editors and deal and i thought i'm just gonna write articles still but i'm not gonna 
deal with anybody. I'm going to post them on my own website. And it's so much fun <laughs> to do. You know, there may be more typos than if they were in a magazine, but so be it. My goal, you know, the word doctor means teacher, and I'm still a teacher. My goal is still to help people, and I do that through my articles and podcasts like this. And But anyway, there, there are many articles uh, on my website, and my music is there as well. And people will see the the books that are out there uh, these days uh, posted uh, with information as well. All right. Well, thank you for spending some time with me this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. It's been fun. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Marathon Strategies you can run one of three races. There are really only three race strategies. Go out hard and hang on. Go out easy and negative split. Go out at a steady state and run even splits. Having run eh, 41-ish marathons, I've tested out all of them. And which strategy works best? Well, if you haven't trained, it doesn't matter. I'm going to assume for this discussion that you've done some sort of adequate training for the race. I'm also not talking about walk-run plans because I don't have any expertise in those. If you think about it, the Galloway race strategy is a form of steady state and in some cases negative split. Jeff will usually tell his folks in his race strategy that if they feel good at mile 20 to feel free to skip the walk breaks and pick up the pace. Of the three strategies, the question as to which is best really depends on how you define what best is. If you want the least amount of pain, it may be either go out slow or steady state. If you want the best time, it may be go out hard or steady state. First, let's look at some of my go out hard races. My PR at Boston was a go out hard race. I was way over my pace, all the way, and I did crash. But I was fit enough and had done the training. I didn't start losing steam until late in the race, mile 22 or mile 3. And when I did slow, it was to a reasonable pace, not to a walk or a sit. I probably lost four, five, six minutes in those last six miles, but I was fit enough to hang on. What if I had run a steady state or a go-out-slow race instead? Well, potentially I wouldn't have lost those four, five, or six minutes but I would not have had the five or six extra minutes in the bank that I had built up by running over my head for the first 20 miles. The go-out-hard only works if you're fit enough. If you don't have the fitness, you end up crashing earlier and harder. Then instead of losing five or six minutes to a slower pace, you lose 20 minutes to a prolonged death march, or worse, you get knocked out of the race. In the case of my PR race at Boston, I'll give you some numbers. This is a long time ago, so... I ran right around seven-minute miles for the majority of the race and only slowed to eight or eight-ish, eight-and-a-half-minute miles near the end for an average of seven-minute and uh, eight-second um, miles. And this was not a comfortable race. I was hurting at the end, but it was a fast race. So let's look at an example of a steady-state race. That same year, in my qualifying marathon at Bay State, that got me into Boston, I ran a 3.09 and change. And I ran every single mile like clockwork at the exact pace required to run a 3.10 marathon. I didn't let myself off the leash until the last mile. And it was glorious. I felt strong and happy and overjoyed as I cruised through the finish with my qualifying time well in hand. 
That sounds pretty good, right? Well, what's the drawback? Well, the drawback to the steady-state race is that I had a lot left in the tank at the end of this race. I was tremendously fit. It's entirely possible that I could have run an amazing race, maybe a sub-three marathon, if I had gone after it. That's the trade-off. What about a start-out slow race? That's the one everyone will tell you works the best, right? Well, certainly the start-out slow race has the lowest probability of catastrophe. I will typically use a go-out slow race strategy if I'm injured or my fitness is questionable. In 2010, I ran Boston, you may remember this, and I wasn't super fit, but I had done honest training, and since I wasn't sure of my fitness, I didn't want to attack the race. I let the race come to me, and after some initial exuberance out of the downhill sections out of Hoppington, I ran into a friend of mine, Gina, from the Goon Squad, and we teamed up to hold each other back, and we both synced into a nice, easy eight-minute mile pace, and whenever one of us would start to speed up, the other would pull back. And I held that pace. I held back. And it really felt like I was holding back until we hit the the hills in Newton. And then I let myself start to accelerate the pace as we climbed out of the Newton Lower Falls over Route 128. Each mile, I'd, I'd let my pace creep up by five seconds a mile or so. By the time I got to heartbreak, I was pushing the pace and blowing by people up the hill. And when we rolled off the top of Heartbreak and down the slump into Boston, I was fresh, and I was able to take advantage of those downhills, and I was running some 7.15 miles down the backside of the hills. I still slowed in the last two or three miles, but ended up negative splitting the race by six to eight minutes in the last eight to nine miles. I don't think there was any scenario that would have gotten me a better time or a better race experience than the go-out-slow strategy on that day. And the wonderful thing about negative split race is that I was passing the dead and wounded like they were standing still in the last eight to nine miles. It's incredibly empowering to be blowing by people late in a marathon. Just like crashing is mentally hard, negative splitting is mentally glorious. Now let's look at some failures. (laughs) And I've had plenty of races where I've gone out hard and crashed early. It's, It's my default setting. Uh, when that happens, it's miserable. You can either battle it all the way down to the bitter end or pull back when you feel it coming. As you get more experience, you can tell, you know, early by mile 10 if it's going to be your day or not. Most of those first, I don't know, half dozen Boston marathons kicked my ass hard and every time was awful. If three to six miles of trudging along feeling sorry for myself, doing the death shovel and grinding it out to the finish. I had no clue how to pace. And if I wasn't super fit, it didn't matter. I'd go out hard, and I'd struggle and suffer at the end. When a go-out-hard race goes sideways, it hurts. You tend to hit the wall between 17 to 20 miles in, and you can hit the wall so hard that you're forced to slow down and walk or sit. And I've had races this year where I've gone from 8.30 miles to 15-minute miles, and I've lost some 20 minutes of positive split in the last eight to nine miles of the race, and it sucks. It's mentally and physically awful to crash like that in a race. Now that I'm older, I usually don't let it get that far. I have a lower tolerance for suffering. (laughs) When I realize it's not my day, I'll back off and I'll find a comfortable pace or schedule walk breaks. If I'm injured or not fit, there's really nothing to do 
except try to make the fitness you have stretch over 26.2 miles the best you can. And this is a mandatory go out slow situation. If you know you're not fit, then you have no other choice than to start slow and try to ride it gracefully through the distance. I'll do things like scheduling a one-minute walk break at the aid stations or even do a Galloway-esque run-walk cadence. I don't train that way, so it doesn't help that much, but it gets me through to the finish. This doesn't mean a steady state or a go-out slow is guaranteed to have a good race. 26.2 miles is a long way to run, and I'm constantly amazed at how hard it gets in those last six miles, regardless of the strategy or the fitness. In some ways, that's why we do what we do to test our mettle in those last few miles. That's the moment of truth. That's what makes it real. Course difficulty, weather, other factors could cause you to switch your strategy to a more cautious approach as well. If you're going to go out hard, then you target a pace that's maybe 10 seconds a mile or more faster than your goal pace for that day. If you're going out steady state, you figure out what your goal time is and you run those splits from the start. If you're going out slow, you want to start at 10 to 20 seconds per mile slower than your target pace. In summary, the best way to control your marathon strategy is, as usual, to train well and honestly. Other than that, you have a choice of go out hard, steady state, or start slow. If you have any doubts, use the start slow strategy. You can always push it when you get into those high miles. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Through the drifting banks of snow, we trudge wearily to the end of a long podcast. Scrape the frost from your glasses, and don't forget, we have one of Phil's songs on the back end of this show. What now? What is the road ahead? I managed to sneak into a popular trail marathon somewhere in the Carolinas, I think, for the first week of March. That will be it. 12 and 12. I need to heal so I can get some of my fitness back for Boston. We got another foot of snow at my house when I was in Europe this week, but soon enough we'll all be gone, and the green things will push up through the mud and push up through the mulch to brighten the gift of longer days. It's just around the corner. Since this show is already over budget, I'll keep it brief. Thank you for your support. Reach out to me with a steadying hand of encouragement, if you can, as I limp through the last months of a particularly challenging year. I will wrap my arm around your shoulder as we stumble forward into the dawning of a new future. We will lift up our heads, straighten our ties, and spit in the eyes of the fates. We will wrestle free our destiny from the hands of our oppressors and stride smiling mischievously into the unknown. Because you can be damn sure that I'll see you out there. Cheers.
Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. I know. Oh, yeah. Oh,